welcome back to our second guest episode. This week, we are hosting Lori of Love Lori Michelle Jewelry. Hi, Lori. (laughs) Hi, ladies. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to do this. Thank you so much for joining us. We're thrilled to have you. And thanks for bearing with us as we figure out the technology. It feels like we relearn this every week. Um, But anyways, uh, we are thrilled to have you. As some of you may know, Lori is a jewelry maker, but she also has other entrepreneurial um, ambitions. And she'll share a little bit about those as well here. But um, we carry Lori's jewelry in store at Park Story. So if you've seen her name or seen her pieces, that's probably where. Or maybe you've met her at a trunk show or seen her stuff on Instagram. But... Uh, Lori, would you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction? Sure, absolutely. Um, Like you said, I feel like I've been in small business forever. Um, I, in addition to the jewelry, I um, also started a a small company um, that does 3D renderings and animation. And I think we'll talk a little bit later, of course, about how that kind of ties in with the jewelry. But yeah, um, my my latest baby is is making jewelry, and um, I usually kind of describe it as modern and minimal architectural, um, which of course ties in with, with my background in architecture. Um, I work primarily in sterling silver, and I also um, work in gold as well. And um, the majority of my pieces do involve three D printing, which I'll tell you a little bit more about. But um, they're also pieces that are handmade. Um, I work with other findings, um, things that I found either work with other artists or have created that way. And I'm also working now with um, repurposing vintage pieces of jewelry. So it's kind of been an evolution of design um, styles and and things like that as I kind of find my, my niche. I love how you do a little bit of everything. Um, I think it definitely speaks to the maker creative and all of us that we can't, we can't stand these neat little boxes. We tend to, <laughs> to touch I've, a lot of yeah, different Yeah, I've been eyeing out the vintage jewelry <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> and I was like, this Thanks, is yeah, awesome. It's a departure from some, some of the other stuff. But yeah, I think um, trying to fit everything that I like to do into a box is, is definitely hard, (laughs) hard to do. So tell us a little bit about um, the leap, the leap in terms terms of getting to just decide like, hey, I'm going to take this and I'm going to work on jewelry. What made you decide to go down that route? Sure. Um, So yeah, like I mentioned before, um, my other small business um, was called Capital Pixel, and um, my background was in architecture. So I was spending my time really making um, 3D renderings for real estate and uh, real estate marketing imagery. So when you would see like a picture of a lobby or a building or you know maybe a new condo that would say coming soon, um, th- those are the sort of images that I would make um, to help tell people's story about real estate. And as part of that work, um, I was making a lot of 3D models of buildings and it was all other people's design work. I was just kind of translating it into an image. Um, and I was really just looking for a creative outlet and the, the process for making a 3D model that would then become a piece of jewelry is, is really the same process that I was doing to create renderings. 
Um, but instead of, you know, the output being a, a digital image that would get shared on the web or shared on Instagram, um, I was making 3D models that I was then um, having, you know, putting them, putting them into production to make them in silver or gold. So it was interesting to me to transition from something digital to something tangible that people could wear and people could use. And, you know, it started as um, something that I was doing for friends and family, um, like a lot of people's hobbies kind of begin that way. And then I just really um, realized how much I loved it and um, liked having an outlet for my own design work or my own creativity. So that's kind of how I transitioned from, you know, the what I call the day job, um, you know, doing architectural mm -hmm. um, renderings into jewelry. I love how the two are so connected. Um, and you can definitely see the link. You're still doing Capital Pixel and the architectural renderings and modeling, right? I am. Yeah. And it's interesting because a couple years ago, and even before the pandemic, it was largely the architectural renderings and the jewelry kind of felt like a back burner side project. And since the pandemic, I've really flipped a lot of my priorities. Um, with the jewelry, I don't have the deadline driven sort of um, requirement anymore. Um, so I'm working a lot more on the jewelry now and have kind of um, sort of switched there. And it's, it's been a natural transition. And I, I like it that way now. So and having that architectural background, you know materials really well, I would assume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. I mean, of course, with architecture, um, I think the biggest difference for me has just been um, sort of understanding the difference in scale between the two. Mm -hmm. With architecture, you know, we're talking about um, beams and, and walls and things that are, you know, human sized, human scaled, um, in terms of rooms or outdoor spaces or, um, things like that. And then with jewelry, it was kind of, um, switching over from thinking in terms of feet and inches to thinking in, in millimeters, actually. Yes. Um, a lot of jewelry design is, is in millimeters. Um, and we're talking about, you know, what scale looks good on your finger or what's too heavy for an earring to wear on your ear. So that, so that was the learning, that, uh -huh. was that the learning curve for you, you, you think, or? Yeah, it was at the time sort of switching from one to the other, um, just thinking on a totally different scale. And, mm -hmm. you know, as humans, how, how do we wear something and what, what proportions feel right on the body as opposed to um, a room or a space that you might be standing in? Right, right. Um, and just to give everybody an idea, so you're also a full-time mom <laughs> and you're managing <laughs> <am>. two businesses. <laughs> I am. How are you managing? Like, you know, how are you keeping the small businesses running and then, you know, sort of maintaining and managing your home and your, being part of your family and active in your family? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I have a great answer to that. I think, um... A lot of it is sort of, I hate to say this, but lowering expectations of myself. You know, I think a lot of small business owners or makers, we all have such a really high level of, um, uh, you know, what we expect out of ourselves and the products that we're making are really a representation of ourselves. And, you know, I think for me, a lot of it has been letting go of some of the little things that I know are never going to be perfect. And, um, you know, I, 
I tell people this a lot, like especially being a mom in small business, you're never going to be 100% at all of the things. So I think when I say lowering expectations, I don't mean like I'm just, you know, making things that aren't, um, aren't quality or, you know, what I expect of myself, Mm -hmm. but rather, um, it's okay to, um, run your business at 80% and, um, be a mom at a hundred percent sometimes. And then there are other days where I feel like my mom abilities are (laughs) not so great. And my, Mm -hmm. you know, my business abilities have to be higher. Um, maybe that's a a day where I have a deadline or I have to be on point for such and such, but, um, And a lot of it is just, you know, relying on people around me. We're lucky that we have family close and um, I have a husband who totally supports my efforts and, you know, he's a big part of making sure that things keep flowing and um, keep going day to day. So, yeah. Where do you get your inspiration um, for your designs, your jewelry designs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I look to a lot of different places. I mean, the easiest answer answer would be um, looking at architectural elements around me, things that um, I come in contact with every day that are um, just pleasing to my eye or um, I find interesting. I think um, a lot of times when we go through life, there are certain things that we're just drawn to and Mm -hmm. maybe we can't necessarily put a finger on why, but... um, you know, a good example would be an intimate space at a restaurant where you just feel so cozy and comfortable and the lighting is right and the space feels good around you. Um, I like to think of certain elements from things like that that sort of make me feel um, make me feel uplifted or make me feel good um, and draw on those as inspiration for some of the architectural pieces. So an example would be, um, I'm trying to think of a good example would be like just finding patterns and repeating lines or shapes that my eye is drawn to and sort of feel good in a space that I've been in that might translate to a piece of jewelry. Um, I know that's kind of vague and um, vague way to answer that, but it's sort of just, you know, when something grabs you and just kind of pulls you in and has that something. Um, so I'm constantly looking around me, taking pictures, um, drawing little sketches of things that sort of mm-hmm. pique my interest. And a lot of times I'll go back and say, you know, what was I thinking here? This is, I can't make anything out of this. Um, so sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I think of course, you know, nature is the other, um, inspiration. It inspires us all. It's, it's hard not to. Um, especially now in the spring, when I walk around, like you just, there's stuff popping up everywhere that like cicadas um, will be popping up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wait for my first, um, cicada request because I make custom yeah. jewelry as well. So I'm sure somebody's going to ask, um, eventually. I was going to say, how is it working, um, with somebody on a custom request? Cause I know you do a lot of it and I would imagine any maker struggles, um, in some respect to take the custom request and translate it into a work of their own, into the medium that they're working with, um, with their own ideas, and then kind of give somebody back what they want. But I would imagine, or maybe not, you might experience sort of like another level of difficulty in that you're working with the 3D renderings, which is maybe something that a lot of everyday folks um, 
don't have experience with or might not be expecting to kind of work with you in that medium? How does that how does that work? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, anytime you're doing something in the design world, there's always a lot of give and take between the designer and the customer or the client, you know, and in the end, um, their needs or wants sort of go above my own. And so I think what I've learned over, you know, 10, 15 years doing this is that it's, it is a give and take. So if somebody comes to me with an idea, um, and, you know, people come to me with like the most amazing ideas in the whole world. And it blows my mind that they want to work with me to, to sort of translate these into something they can wear. And I think part of it is sort of guiding them rather than telling them. Um, you know, if somebody comes to me with an idea and I see something that might not translate really well or might not work the way they have in mind, I sort of see it as my job to, um, you know, steer them towards something that will get them what they want, but still be ultimately an elegant piece of jewelry that works. Um, a lot of times I run into, um, not an issue, but, um, you know, there, there are limitations to the material we work with, whether, you know, I'm working in metal, you know, whether you're working with clothing or fabric or whatever it is, there's always a limitation to your material, what you can, there's only so much you can do with it. Um, with, metal, a lot of times it's a sizing issue. You know, people want something that's really small and petite, but they want lots of detail. And so we have to sort of find a, a middle ground where I can guide them and say, um, you know, here's how we can best um, reach your vision. And it's sort of, I love being able to introduce people to the design process. Um, you know, going through architecture school, I'm used to the sort of back and forth where you might present an idea and then refine it and present it again and refine it some more. So it's a lot of back and forth. And when I work with custom clients, it's fun to do that, to, you know, send them and say, this is just a preview. This is not the final piece. Here's what we can do. And a lot of times up front, I'll show them, you know, three or four options and, and see which one they gravitate towards. Um, and then that becomes part of the process where we you know, they might come back and say, oh, I like the first two that you suggested, and then we'll refine those and narrow them down. Um, and I know a lot of people haven't worked through that that process. So I think the ultimate piece of jewelry that is designed is amazing, but the process of sort of using your own input and using their, their feedback is what really um, is enjoyable to me. I think that really kind of segues into what I think a lot of us struggle with, which is the, the nuanced nature and um, uniqueness that independent handmade creative goods offer. Lori, are you still with us? And she's back. We lost you oh. for a second. Yeah, right. oh, sorry. I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, we're back. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, so I think that's so interesting because I the custom is just part of kind of like one part and parcel. I would imagine of um, running a handmade jewelry business. Are there particular challenges that something like custom work or just even you know pieces that you've designed and you decide to make ready um, for purchase on Instagram or at a market? Like, how does that work in a world where we're so accustomed to jewelry being available, 
literally everywhere. I mean, you can buy something at Target or Walmart or, um, I don't know, the tiny jewel box on Connecticut Avenue, like, like jewelry, especially something like jewelry that people are so, um, accustomed to seeing. Like how does that work as an independent maker trying to say like, this is special and unique and different and one of a kind and like that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that a lot of makers, um, face that, that same challenge, um, you know, trying to find your niche and define what makes your pieces special or why should somebody buy from me over, like you said, a Target or um, H&M or, you know, wherever it is. I think I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, sort of, ed- I hate to say educating because that sounds like I'm preaching to, to somebody or to a consumer, but I think educating people on um, sort of the value and quality that you can get from handmade or um, custom as opposed to purchasing something from a a big box store. Um, You know, there's a time and a place where, yeah, we all shop at Target and we all pick up, um, you know, costume or play jewelry. Um, I think that it it all has a place in what we consume. But I, I think it's important for people to understand sort of investing, you know, $100 in a custom piece of jewelry that becomes a lifetime or an heirloom piece that you can have forever and pass on to a family member is different than buying, you know, 10 pairs of sort of throwaway uh, earrings or necklaces that aren't going to last. So I think, I think part of it is just, you know, people, people are becoming better consumers and understanding that and understanding the value of, you know, shopping small, shopping local, um, putting dollars back into your local maker's economy is a lot better in a lot of cases than, um, you know, supporting, supporting an Amazon or something like that. So I, and I, I think, I think things are trending in the right way with that um, in terms of, you know, the rise of things like your shop and, um, others around or or park stories, I mean, um, you know, people, people value that they will go back when they find, um, a maker that they like and have purchased a piece that they realize is lasting and, and more valuable than, than elsewhere. I also realized that the product itself is part of that relationship, but it's so, so is like meeting you, meeting the maker and meet, meeting the shop owner, um, kind of the in-person experience that somebody gets when they shop small, um, adds so much to the piece as opposed to picking up something at Target. Um, just the actual shopping experience isn't there. And maybe it's COVID, maybe it's the way we were all headed, but I feel like that in-person experience is becoming more and more valuable in addition to like the high-quality product that they're actually acquiring. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it always blows my mind when, you know, I'll do a pop-up or a in-person event and people's people will say, Oh, I came here specifically to, to talk to you and to see your new pieces. Um, that gives me a lot of, you know, joy and hope that, you know, that those are the, those are the kind of customers and, and clients that really make, make what I do worthwhile. And, um, Yeah, I just I see more of that. And I think that the ability to, 
you know, follow someone on Instagram and sort of see their new pieces and see how they evolve. Um, you know, I've also had people contact me and say, you know, Hey, I've been wearing this necklace you've made for, for forever. I've decided I want a longer chain or, you know, whatever it is, something like that. Um, and I'm able to help them with that. So it's, you know, if you, if you're shopping with a big, um, a big box place, you're not going to get that sort of personal touch where you can, Mm -hmm. um, ask questions or, um, you know, at in-person events, I'll help people get their ring size figured out things like that. So yeah, I agree with what you said about sort of the personalization and the experience of the the shopping event is, is different. Right. So what has been one of your um, biggest challenges? Um... (laughs) Oh man, where should I start? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Challenges, challenges. Yeah. I think for me, um, for me, it would be delivery, delivery time of my, my pieces. Um, you know, I am a small shop, um, right now I'm just one person. So, you know, some weeks I'll have three, four or five custom requests and, um, you know, people are not great at planning ahead, myself included. So my turnaround time right now is usually about four weeks, sometimes a little bit faster, but sometimes a little bit longer. And, um, I would just say trying to figure out, um, delivery time, especially around big holidays, like mother's day is a big one for custom jewelry. Um, and you know, right now I think we're about, what is it? Three, four weeks out from Mm -hmm. mother's day. So if somebody even contacts me today, which is almost a month ahead of time, I'm still (laughs) down to the wire on getting that piece delivered in time. Um, so, you know, Valentine's Day is another one. And then, of course, um, the holidays at the end of the year. It's just tough for me to figure out how to do things quickly and efficiently, um, especially in a time when, you know, overnight shipping and two-day delivery is the norm. Um, you know, even if I'm shipping things at the fastest speed possible, it's the making time that that has um, been a challenge for me to figure out. Um, so, you know, and that's a lot of that is just setting expectations with customers Mm. and saying, Hey, you know, if you're going to order something custom, get, you know, give time for, for a single person to make something and to get it done. Right. Right. Yeah. What do you wish you had known when you started, like when you first started making jewelry, what's something you wish you had known that you didn't know then? Sure. What do I wish I had known? Um, I think, I think that I wish I'd known more about how to predict the sort of ebb and flow of incoming business. And there's still no really great way for me to figure that out. But um, I wish I'd known how hard it is to predict what people are going to buy and and when, Um, you know, like I was kind of saying in my last answer, you know, one month I might get 30 orders in the first couple days. And I'm like, wow, I hope this keeps up. You know, that would be amazing. And then they fall off and, you know, a week might go by where I just have a couple orders trickle in and it's just hard to tell what drives buyers at certain times. And, um, you know, as a small business income flow is, it's just hard to predict. It's hard to predict, you know, what to expect. And even if I compare, you know, what did I do last year, this month? Um, I think until I have many years in business to sort of look back at those trends, 
it's hard to predict, um, you know, even with your data from the last year or the last month, who knows what's going to happen and then throw a pandemic into it and (laughs) really really thrown for a wild loop. Yeah. And I think sometimes though, oh, sorry. I was just going to say sometimes somebody also, um, somebody told me, um, that it's okay to have quiet months because those are the times where, you know, you can catch up and you can plan uh, for the expected busier months. So like your, your, you know, your, you can depend on holiday sales or Mother's Day sales and, or you, I shouldn't say depend, you can most likely expect a rise in sales over those times in, in the year. And so they were saying to me like, well, if you do have a quiet week or a quiet month, use that time to see how you can plan and work uh, on being more efficient for the busier times, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And those quiet months are and times are, are definitely needed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like you said, those are the times when I'm cleaning up my, my <laughs> studio and trying to pre-order the supplies and anticipate the things that I'll need. Um, you know, because I also do, I buy a lot of my findings like clasps and chains and stuff from suppliers on Etsy. So, uh, yeah. um, you know, we're all makers in a way. And so, the, the timing of ordering things mm-hmm. is often, you know, really a good thing to do in, in downtime and to figure out next steps. So, yeah, I agree. Megan, I cut you off. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that inconsistency, inconsistency and predictability, unpredictability are just very nerve wracking and something I struggle with too, because I like to come up with like an average daily sales goal. And yes, I have that set by like, you know, month and weekday versus weekend and holiday month versus, you know, not holiday month. And then in retail, you know, January and February are slower than other months, but it's, I feel like the only thing that's predictable is that it's unpredictable and mm-hmm. trying to crack that code is forever in my brain. Cause you want just consistency for me is it gives me peace of mind, you know, like, some level of consistency from day to day or week to week is helpful because it does help you plan. Yeah. Uh, Especially as a shop owner, I would imagine trying to figure out the consistent um, thing. And yeah, I mean, I know I find myself going, you know, was it the sunshine that day? Yeah. You you start grasping at things that, you know, are totally out of your control. And I think, I think one of the things I, um, talk to Megan about because sometimes I would say to her like oh well I'm quiet today let me see how Megan's doing <laughs> is it the sunshine are people out shopping where they would they prefer to be in store versus online right buying online versus in store uh, but I was going to say that one of the things that uh, we've noticed is just longevity how long have you been around within the community Um, Because that time, I mean, during that time, like, you know, you attending uh, markets and fairs is is where you can actually grow your customer base. Um, And again, like, so three years down the line, it's going to be, it's going to look different, right? So it's going to look positive because more people know about you. You, You've had that time um, to share your brand with everybody. So um, that's one of the things that keeps me going. It's like, okay, longevity, keep going, just keep going, you know, the more people I expose my business to the, you know, and share my business with the better, the better it is over time. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's, there's something to be said for, um, 
longevity, like you said, you know, there's this, um, I think there's like a myth or, you know, when people that aren't makers, I think sometimes, or creators look at what we do as very entrepreneurial and it is in a lot of ways, but it's, it's also different in a lot of ways. And I think that there's this, um, conception that, oh, I'm going to make a product and I'm going to sell thousands of them and it's going to be easy money and like things are just going to take off from day one. And that's not how it works. I mean, you both know lots of other makers as well. And the ones that are successful are the ones that have, you know, they've been at it for five, seven, ten, ten years. years. It yeah. doesn't happen overnight. Yep. And um, especially, you know, with things like Instagram and social media, it's really easy to make this sort of big visual splash and look like you're something that maybe you're not. So I think, I think there's, there is a little bit of a conception that, you know, you just make and the sales will come and things will happen. But, you know, we know that it doesn't happen like that. And it takes time to build an audience. It takes time to refine your product. Um, you know, when I look back at jewelry, I was making even five years ago, it, it's like, whoa, look how far I've come and how, how much better I've gotten at my own, my own craft. So yeah, I think do- over time we, we all become better, but it's not, it's not an overnight success yeah. story ever, mm-hmm. ever. Would you do it again? If you'd known that, if you'd known like the highs are so high and the lows are so low and it's all kind of all just so unpredictable. Like, I think a lot of us are drawn to entrepreneurship because we think we get to own life. Like we get to set our own hours. We get to make what we want. We get to build our own website. We get to manage our own social media. But so much of this life isn't our own. Like we have to, we have to um, appeal to an audience that wants to buy what we're making. We have to attend craft fairs at the dates that they're made available to us. We have to kind of um, work with holidays that drive sales and like, we don't get to set those holidays. Um, would, like, so would you do it? Like, is it worth it? Would you do it all over? Yeah, it's absolutely worth it. I would do it again. Um, I think it's, it's definitely not for everybody. Um, I think it's a certain type of personality and a certain type of drive, but yeah, I think that the the highs, like you were saying, you get to own those as your own, you know, when you're doing really well, or you're making a lot of sales, or you're really proud of a new design that you've made or whatever it is, like those are yours and yours alone, um, to celebrate and to be excited and to be happy about. And, you know, there's always lows, I think, with any business or any um, endeavor. But I think owning those as well, you know, knowing that I'm responsible for um, sort of everything that goes into my job and goes into what I do. I like that sense of ownership. And I I can't imagine um, going back to, you know, working for somebody else or... um, it's just, I've been doing this for so long that, um, yeah, I appreciate being able to really, really take hold of what's mine and, and, you know, celebrate the things that I'm proud of and, um, know that I'm sort of the driving force behind what I'm doing. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not for everybody. It's, it's a different, it's a different, um, game to be in for sure. Yeah. Um, do you have any, um, let's say nuggets of wisdom, um, for somebody thinking about, um, you know, 
starting or getting into jewelry or just starting out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I think I would say, you know, whether you wanted to make or design jewelry or anything else, I would just say do stuff that feels true to you and and be yourself. Um, I think that when you're making or creating stuff, um, yeah, do what feels good to you and feels right to you. Um, a lot of times I think, and I've done this, been, been guilty of doing it before. I, I sometimes have found myself on tangents where I'm like, oh, I think I should be making this thing because, you know, somebody else has asked for it or somebody said, oh, why don't you make things with seashells in them? And I'm like, oh, I should totally make things with, with seashells in them. And then I'm like, wait, that's, that's actually not what I want to do. And it's not part of my aesthetic. So I'm not going to do that. And it's taken me a long time to sort of realize how to be true to what I want to do and what I want to make. Um, which is not to say don't listen to your customers or, or don't take suggestions from other people. There's, there's plenty of, um, good ideas and things out there, but I would say if you ever find yourself being pulled in a direction that doesn't feel authentic to you or what you want to be doing, then, you know, that's the time to, to step back and, and figure out what it is that you, what interests you and what do you want to be doing? It's so much easier to make a good product or to enjoy what you're doing and to then sell it well if you like what you're making and it feels authentic. Yes, can, 100%. <laughs> I can definitely relate to doing things I felt like I had to or should do or was the, you know, what I should be doing in that position. And then I, when I had the product, like as a clothing line, I'd be like, well, I, I don't love this. It's not me. And so I didn't promote it and I didn't want to sell it. And I wasn't, you know, doesn't generate the same level of pride or of interest. And I just think then it's hard to sell and to get behind. And that does no one any good. Um, Yeah, exactly. People can, people can tell if you're authentic or not. I mean, you just can, like, I'm sure we've all seen brands or um, things that just something doesn't feel quite right. You know, something's a little bit off. But um, yeah, if, if you feel like you can 100% stand behind your product and you would use it and mm-hmm. you would recommend it to your mom and your best friend, you don't have to pretend, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> you're not selling yeah. something. You're really just showing people how much you love your, your um, creation. Yes. It's, it's almost different than selling. You're like, here's my baby. Please appreciate yeah. it in a responsible way. Well, it is. Yeah. It's also personal. And sometimes you're like, if they don't like it, then it's like, oh, they don't like me. They don't like who I am. They don't want to stand for. And you, you right. have to start yeah. like, to set barriers. Like, it's not, I am not the product. The product is not me. Um, exactly. We have, you know, I make a variety of things. So people are, I sell a variety of things. So people can choose what speaks to them. It does get sometimes that line is too close. (laughs) I feel you on that for sure. Um, But all right. I guess my last question would be is where do you hope to see yourself in a year or five years or down the line? Yeah, down the line. Um, I mean, I would love to just keep growing as an artist, Um, you know, keep making more custom pieces and just keep growing my audience. Um, I've recently been focusing on sort of scaling up my presence in local shops. And I find that that's a really good way to sort of 
grow my audience and I want to continue doing that. Um, I would say I don't really have plans to ever become like a massive operation. (laughs) Um, I like the idea of being a small shop and staying a small shop. I think it would be cool maybe in five years to have a couple people working alongside me. Um, you know, just keeping things small, but still being able to scale up production in a way that I can sort of pass on my knowledge of jewelry to others and maybe also bring in some employees that would be able to share some other jewelry making techniques with me. Um, I do feel the benefit of, um, you know, working with a couple other people. I think small groups can have the power to create better and, um, more quality items, but I, yeah, like I said, I don't really, um, you know, want to be a big, big shop or anything like that. Um, I also kind of have this vision of, um, I don't know. I keep thinking there's something to be done in terms of, you know, before we were talking about the shopping experience and I always have this idea of, um, having some sort of 3d shop that where people could come in and talk to me about something that they want to create. And, you know, there's a 3d printer kind of sitting out so that people can watch what's going on. And, you know, uh, in terms of the like big, um, plans that might never happen, but I think would be cool. I think some sort of 3d experiential shop. And I mean, these exist. There's like, um, there's a shop you can walk into in New York. I forget what it's called, but they'll walk in and like body scan you and 3d print, like a little figurine of you, like in your clothes and with your facial features (laughs) and everything. And it's cool. You know, I think part of it is the take home piece, but part of it's the experience. And, you know, I could see down the road, like there's, there's definitely room and space for weird, um, things involving 3d printing, you know, and whether it's jewelry or something else, I think, um, you know, 3d printing has been around forever and it still feels like a new technology, but it's not, but there's also, I think so much more it's going to be doing Mm -hmm. in the future that, um, you know, I think we'll see a lot more of it personally. And I think people are, are interested to go see it. So, you know, maybe five years down the road, I can talk about my (laughs) 3d shop. shop. Yeah. Yeah. But that's sort of, you know, grand visions. Who knows? Let me know when you open up. I want to come. I want a little, yeah. little mini figurine of my of my <laughs> dog. Actually, I'll bring the dog. You can three D. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, well, Lori, it was so great having you here this morning and interviewing you and learning more about your business. Um, it's been such fun. And um, can you tell people where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for having me. First of all, it was <laughs> a pleasure talking to two other makers and creators. And um, I think that it's not every day that we get to step back and sort of think about and talk about what we do. So this was really nice for me to be able to reflect on my own work and sort of give me pause, like take that deep breath and, mm-hmm. and think a little bit. But yeah, people can find me online. Um, my website is just lovelorimichelle.com. Um, I do have a web shop there. And then I also spend way too much time on Instagram, um, just at level. Don't we all? I know I'm a consumer and a poster. So, um, yeah, I love to connect with other makers as well. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm really just, I'm into small business. And so, you know, I find that Instagram is, is such a great space for finding people that way. So, um, I would love if people would connect with me there as well. Cool. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. We enjoyed it. <laughs> well, that's it. We will see you next month, right, Megan? Yep. With a new guest and that will be a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. bye, everybody. <laughs> bye.